If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians 4. Have you ever agreed to do something without really knowing what you were signing up for? So maybe you thought you were being hired to do one job, you found out it's actually something quite different. Maybe you agreed to take on some kind of leadership position at a place you volunteer. Again, you didn't realize what the workload would be. Maybe you told a friend you'd help them move. You show up, you find out they haven't even started packing yet. (laughs) Perhaps you thought marriage and parenting would be as fun and easy as it looks on Instagram. The honeymoon fades away. You're wondering, did I miss some kind of fine print here? Have you ever been in the process of making a bad decision and somebody stopped you? They warned you. Maybe they helped you understand what it was that you were signing up for. Perhaps you were pursuing an unhealthy relationship or making a bad financial investment. Someone helped you see or understand something that you had not recognized before. If you were making a poor spiritual decision, one with disastrous consequences, what would cause you to change your mind? I think you would want God's word applied to you. You would hope that we, your brothers and sisters, would speak the truth in love to you. I think part of what you would want to see is the truth and your error, where it was that you have been deceived. You would want to understand the ramifications of the choice that you're making. You'd want us to help you see what you're actually signing up for. This is more or less what's happening with the Galatians. We'll see that especially today. Paul seems to think that they don't really understand what they're signing up for in moving back to the law for salvation. Now, you'll recall that a group of Judaizers have made their way, they're kind of like these anti-missionaries, have made their way to the churches in Galatia. They've taught them, they've corrected Paul's gospel, they've taught them that to be justified before God, that is to have your sins forgiven and to have a righteous standing before God, you need more than simply believing in Jesus. You need to obey Moses. You need to be circumcised. You need to adhere to the law. Paul, with forceful clarity, writes to the Galatians to correct their correction. He explains that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. More than that, he says, anyone who says differently is cursed. Anyone who believes differently is cursed. Anyone who's telling you differently doesn't actually have your good in mind. We saw this last time. They are zealous to court you, but they're doing it for themselves. We've seen Paul. He's made appeal after appeal after appeal, turning to scripture, to experience, to theology. Last time he made a more personal appeal. I'll say this as a quick point of application. Friends, how instructive is this for us to see that Paul doesn't give up quickly when our brothers and sisters are Wandering off into spiritual ruin, we don't settle for half efforts. We pray, we plead with them, we aim to persuade them, and then we repeat. Paul has basically been making the same argument over and over again. He's going to do it again this time. It's one of his kind of last appeals in the book, and he's going to do it differently. It's like, okay, you haven't heard the fine print I've been bringing out, so let me tell you a bit of a story. He's going to tell them a story rooted in Israel's history, and he's going to apply it to their situation. Because he seems to think that they don't understand what they're signing up for in turning to the law for salvation. This is what I think Paul wants them and us to see this morning, is that there are two very different ways to try to relate to God. 
They, are birth- they come out of these two different covenants. They produce two very different kinds of children. One is free in Christ. The other is a slave under the law and sin. I think Paul is saying if you rightly understood this, you wouldn't turn to the law, you would turn to the gospel. So let me tell you this story. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 21. If you are able, I will invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one by the free woman was born through promise. These things are being taken figuratively, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is Hagar. Now Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Now you too, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the Spirit, so also now. But what does the Scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of a slave, but of the free woman. Amen. You can be seated. Our big idea this morning is simple. If you understood the law, you'd turn to the gospel. Like if you rightly understood the law, if you heard it, you would turn to the gospel. You see, it's as though God continues to speak to the law through the law today to us. If we heard him rightly, we would run to Jesus. Paul has been making this claim throughout the book of Galatians that the law covenant as a package, it was temporary. It was preparatory. It has passed away with the coming of Jesus. More than that, it never even had the power to give life. If you look to the law for life, you will find death. If you understood the law, you would turn to the gospel. This is what Paul wants us to grasp. He's going to tell us a story of sorts that's built on a series of contrasts. These will be our points this morning. It's how we'll structure our time. The three points we'll see Two children, two mothers, and two outcomes. So again, if you're taking notes, two children, we'll see two mothers and two outcomes. The two children really correspond to two principles, two different ways of relating to God, one by works, one by faith. The two mothers are two different covenants, the old and the new, and the two outcomes are really the statuses that are afforded to these children, and we'll see the way that they even interact with one another. But we begin with, two children. Paul begins in verse 21. Look at it again. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, don't you hear the law? What Paul is saying is that you're saying you're all about the law now. I don't think you actually understand what it means. To quote Inigo Montoya from The Princess Bride, you keep using that word. I do not think you know what it means. You're saying you're all about the law now, but if you understood it, 
you wouldn't seek to rebuild what was torn down, right? What was temporary, what has been fulfilled, you wouldn't run to it for life. You would run to Jesus. Tell me, you, who say you want to be under the law, what do you hear from the law? It's interesting that Paul, rather than opting for a word like understands, goes with hears, because God continues to speak through the law to us today, and what we'll see is that in the law, he thunders against our sin. Tell me, what do you hear? Hebrews chapter 12, feel free to turn there if you'd like. This passage parallels our text in a number of ways, and the author's setting up a contrast between the old and the new covenant, between Mount Sinai and the heavenly Jerusalem. He's showing us how much more glorious it is to be in the new covenant. And this is what he, or the author, writes about the old covenant. Beginning in verse 18, For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, that is thunder, to a blast of trumpet and to the sound of words, those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them. For they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touched the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. This is drawing off of Exodus 19 where Israel first received the law. They heard the thunder of God on the mountain and they trembled. Paul's saying, you're saying you want to be under the law. I don't think you actually hear it. You see, the law seeks to regulate our relationship with God on the basis of our obedience, our law-keeping something that we can't do. The gospel, it regulates our relationship with God on the basis of Jesus. What we have in him is a mediator, the God-man who stands in the gap. In him, the demands of the law have been fulfilled. He lived righteously on our behalf and yet was punished for our sin. Friends, if you are not in Christ and you find yourself one day standing before God, you will realize you have nowhere to hide. The law will actually be your list of treasons before God. Paul is saying, you say you want to be under the law. I don't think you know what that means. To be under the law, Galatians 3.10, is to be under a curse because you can't keep it. To be under the law is to be under sin's power because it doesn't actually help you keep its commands, Galatians 3.22. To be under the law is to be under a guardian, 3.25, to be under the law is to be under the elements of the world, 4-2. To be under the law is to once again be enslaved to false gods, 4-9. If you understood what the law was saying, if you heard it rightly, you would hear its thunder and you would tremble. You would run to the rock of ages that you might find safety in him. Again, you say you hear the law, but I don't think you do. Right? It's principle, it's punishment, it provokes sin, it prepared the way for the Savior. Now that the Savior is here, the promised one, it has passed away. If you heard it rightly, you would hear it telling you, run to Jesus. He frees us while the law enslaves. Paul's saying, I don't think you get it, so let me tell you a story about Israel's history and how it relates to you. Beginning there in verse 22, Paul writes, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave and the other by a free woman. Now, this is Jewish history 101. This is also our history. 
The Judaizers, of course, are fond of using Abraham as kind of their, their key example. They love him. They got his poster into their bedroom, little Abraham bobblehead on their desk. So Paul says, okay, we'll go back to Abraham again. They are arguing that we're saved as we come into the people of God through circumcision. We remain in the people of God as we obey the law. They're not wrong, so to speak, in that we're saved as we come into the people of God. They have in mind ethnic Israel. We come in by circumcision. What we need is not to get into ethnic Israel, but into true Israel, which is Jesus, and it comes by faith. It is as we are united to the true offspring of Abraham that all that is his becomes ours. So he starts with this kind of history 101. They all would have known. Yes, Abraham, two sons. Now to understand it, you gotta understand the history here. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham. He promises him. He gives him a number of promises to bless him, to give him a great name, Um, This great nation would come from him. And importantly, all the families of the earth would be blessed. God is telling Abraham that the curse would be reversed through his line. Like one day, Abraham's children would make it back to the garden, to paradise. But as we'll see, it actually exceeds the garden. It's a garden city, the New Jerusalem. This will become clear later. But some time had passed, and in Genesis 15, Abraham vocalizes a bit of concern to God. Like, you promised to make me into this great nation, but I don't really have an heir. I need you to give me a son that we can get this going. If I'm going to become a nation, I need a son and an heir. Well, God tells Abraham that his children indeed would be as numerous as the stars of the sky. They would dwell in the land that he had promised, and then God formalizes this covenant as we've seen. These animals were torn in two, and rather than God and Abraham both walking in the midst of them, God alone passes through the blood, telling Abraham that if either of us fail to uphold our covenant obligations, I will bleed for you and your children. And indeed, he would. In Genesis 16, Abraham's wife, Sarah, sure goes tired of waiting for a child. If you've ever tried to conceive, you probably know this feeling of impatience, month after month finding out, that you're not pregnant. Well, for Sarah, this has lasted years, years and years and years and years. And so she comes up with this great plan, she thinks. She tells Abraham to go into her Egyptian slave, Hagar, hoping that she can build a family through her. Hagar, who's much younger, she produces a son named Ishmael. Well, in Genesis chapter 17 now, Abraham is 99 years old. Sarah is about 90. God confirms the covenant that he made to Abraham. He would indeed become this great nation. He would once again, his family would dwell in the land. The curse would be reversed. But it's not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to come through another son, a son of Sarah. You see, this is not that God has any issue with Ishmael as Ishmael, but rather God's salvation is going to be a gift. This is part of what Paul is stressing here, these two different ways of relate to God. It would come by divine intervention alone. Isaac then is born in Genesis 21. Abraham is 100. Sarah is 90. Not in dog years, human years. (laughs) They are very old. This is divine intervention. There is new life and it is a gift of God. We get two children who come from two very different mothers who are produced by two very different means. This is what Paul is wanting us to see. They come into two different statuses. Notice, Paul doesn't use the names of the women, not yet. He's not doing this to dehumanize him, but he refers to one as the free woman, one as to the slave woman. And it's because he's taking this story and he's mapping it onto our experience to show us 
that one was a result of the works and it leads to slavery. The other is a gift from God, a result of faith, and it leads to freedom. Paul is stressing two different ways of relating to God. Look at verse 23. But the one by the slave was born as a result of the flesh, while the one of the free woman was born through promise. These are words we've we've heard throughout Galatians. The contrast of the children is really a contrast of principles, of two different ways of relating to God. One is by works of the flesh, the other is by faith, grabbing hold of what God has done by his spirit. And so looking in at 23, the one by the slave, that's Ishmael, was born as a result of the flesh. We've heard that before, Galatians 3, verses 2 and 3. Paul says, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish after beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Paul is using these interchangeably, works of the law and the flesh. They stand in contrast to the work of the spirit, which we receive by believing what we've heard. So you see, these are two different principles. The principle of the law, if you recall, it's to do these things and live. You must do all these things and live. If you don't, you're dead. You can't, so you're cursed. Paul wants us to see these principles in contrast how it's working out in Abraham's life now Abraham and Sarah they grow impatient rather than resting on the promises of God they take matters into their own hands like maybe we believe God will make us into a great nation but let's give him a little something to start with let's begin it for him he can finish it for us that's when Abraham turns to Hagar they get Ishmael Ishmael then is actually a child of the flesh because he's a fruit of their works apart from God He's a visible picture of their distrust in God. He's also a child of the flesh in that he was conceived naturally. Okay? Abraham understands that the issue is probably with Sarah, who's 90 years old. You probably don't know any 90-year-old women who have given birth. So he turns to his much younger um, woman in his household, Hagar. We have on record, kind of modern record, men who have fathered children. No joke up to about 100 years old. It still happens. But in modern history, no woman has given birth naturally past the age of 67. Okay? It's stressing that he is of the flesh, which means it was their own doing, in a sense, apart from God. They were not trusting in God, but rather their own works. Now, Isaac, on the other hand, if you look at verse 23, he's born by the free woman through the promise. Again, two principles in contrast. The law says, do this. In the promise, God says, I will. The promise stands in contrast to works because they are freely given. There are no stipulations. Abraham simply needs to stop from his working and rest in God. Now you can see how impossible this sounds. He's to trust God that he will take this barren 90-year-old woman, 25 years after the promise was given, and from her, a child will be born. Friends, it also requires faith in the goodness and the power of God to believe that he can take dead men and women and give them life, right? That he could take rebels and turn them into children, that he could take those who are unrighteous and give them a righteous standing in Christ. That requires faith to believe that God himself took on flesh, that he lived on our behalf, that he died, and that he rose from the dead. It requires faith in what is 
What is for man impossible, but what is for God possible? And this is what Paul is wanting us to see, the contrast of these principles. You can try to relate to God by your flesh, according to the works, as it's laid out in the Mosaic Covenant, or you can rest upon the promises of God. Like you can grit it out and find that one day you will be sorely disappointed as you hear that you are condemned, or you can fling yourself upon the mercies of Jesus. Just as Isaac was born by pure divine intervention, so too is it with our salvation. God himself does what we could not for ourselves. God must save us, and he has. Friends, this is the gospel that God has dealt with our sins in the body of his son on the cross, and that he is risen from the dead. If you're visiting us this morning, you're not a Christian, we would encourage you to think upon the gospel. When you stand before God, what are you going to be resting in? Is it your good works or Jesus? We would encourage you to turn from your sins and to trust in Christ. We would encourage you to talk to any one of our members today about the gospel after the service. So this is how Paul begins with these two children. He's saying, do you hear the law? Because I don't think you do. God, through the law, thunders in response to your sin. But God, in the gospel, forgives you. He speaks to you tenderly, calling you his children home. Friends, NBC, do you hear the law? Do you hear the gospel? Do you want God to relate to you on the basis of your law-keeping? On the number of your quiet times? On how well you do or don't fight your sin? Is that how you want him to relate to you? It really is, as we sang just a moment ago, a sweet thing to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, to know that we've been plunged in his blood and cleansed from our sins apart from our works. So Abraham has two sons. He begins here, but they come from two very different mothers. One a slave, the other a free woman, and they represent two covenants. So this brings us to our second point. We'll see two mothers... And really what we have here are two covenants that stand in contrast with one another. Again, they're not in competition because the old covenant isn't offering salvation. It's complementary. It's leading us to Jesus. But we see these two covenants, beginning in verse 24, these things are being taken figuratively. We're talking about real history that Paul is kind of mapping on to them that we might understand these principles. He says, for the women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Now, if you're a Judaizer, you're sitting here listening, you're thinking, yeah, that's the Mosaic Covenant, and it obviously corresponds to Sarah, right? Duh. It was given to the people of Israel, to Abraham and Sarah's children. It makes sense. They think the works are added to the promise. It's the means by which you come into the promise. Okay, and then they keep listening. These two women represent two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai and bears children into slavery. This is is Hagar. Okay, a bit of a plot twist, an ironic one of that. Israel was brought up out of slavery in Egypt to Mount Sinai. Paul says they are brought into a different kind of slavery there. They might have escaped Egypt, but they find themselves now with an Egyptian mother, once again in slavery. Now, while Israel was indeed brought up out of slavery, the problem with the law is really a problem with us. It's that it can't bring us out of the slavery of sin. It actually makes our situation worse. 
we are dead in our sins, and if we look to the law for life, it is as though we are digging our graves deeper and deeper and deeper. Ethnic Israel finds themselves out of Egypt, but with an Egyptian mother and under slavery once again. Verse 25, Paul goes on. Now, Hagar represents Mount Sinai and Arabia. What's Paul doing here? He's adding layer upon layer. In Genesis 16, Hagar was told that her son would grow into a great nation, much like Isaac. But unlike Isaac, he wouldn't inherit the land. In fact, he would live in the wilderness, in Arabia. Paul is saying that their mother is Hagar in Arabia. They might think that they are in the covenant people of God, bound to the promised land, but Paul is saying that if you are looking to the law for justification, you actually find yourself in the wilderness. You are outside of paradise, outside of the covenant of blessing. Your mother has brought you forth into slavery. He says, Hagar represents Mount Sinai in Arabia, and she corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Paul's claim is so staggering, it's hard to wrap our minds around. But if you're following his argument, he's saying that Hagar is Mount Sinai, which is the covenant of works. She corresponds to present-day Jerusalem. He's saying that ethnic Israel under the law is not the offspring of Sarah. They are Hagar's children. They are Ishmael. And in fact, their capital, present-day Jerusalem, it's not the promised land. It's a place of spiritual bondage. There, the elemental spirits reign supreme. Friends, could you imagine going to Israel today and telling the Jews that they are not actually children of Abraham in the way that they think they are? that they belong to Hagar, that they actually have more in common with Palestinian Muslims than they do with the children of promise. You would end up on the next episode of Locked Up Abroad. (laughs) It's incredibly offensive. Paul knows that he is. He's going to bring this out just in a bit. He does so with more clarity in chapter 5 and chapter 6 that preaching the cross and not circumcision is offensive. You see, the Judaizers are saying we're children of Abraham. Paul's saying, you know what? You're right. You are the children of Abraham, but not in the way that you think. You've got the right dad, but the wrong mom. You don't belong to Sarah the free. You belong to Hagar the slave. Your Jerusalem is actually Mount Sinai in the wilderness outside of the land of promise. And Galatians, if you intend to join them, NBC, if you turn away from Christ, you will find out that you are cut off from grace and the people of God you will not one day find yourself in paradise. You're saying you want to be under the law. I don't think you know what that means. You're turning from freedom to slavery, from Sarah to Hagar. She is their mother. Present-day Jerusalem to this day is enslaved in spiritual bondage. It is not the promised land. Verse 26 setting up the contrast, moving from one mother to another, but the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Do you cast the contrast there? There's a key difference. Their mother is present-day Jerusalem. Our mother is not future Jerusalem. She is the Jerusalem above. She is currently our mother, meaning we are members of her covenant. 
We are currently citizens of the eschatological city, the end time city that is heavenly Zion. It is our current and future and forever home brought here right now. No, you won't find our Jerusalem on a map, but that doesn't mean it isn't real. It doesn't mean it isn't literal. It is heavenly. It is not present day Jerusalem. It is the actual Jerusalem that Abraham looked forward to. It is the substance of the shadow that is Canaan. Turn back to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 this time. Beginning in verse 9. Listen here. It says that by faith he, that is Abraham, stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents as did Isaac and Jacob, co-heirs of the same promise, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And then down in verse 13, these, that is the Old Testament saints, all died in faith, although they had not received the things that were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on earth. Now those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they were thinking about where they came from, they would have had an opportunity to return But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. You see that Abraham was not looking forward to just a little strip of land in the Middle East, but a better place, a heavenly city and home, the new Jerusalem. What they saw from a distance, what they greeted from afar, we actually have right here, right now. Now, we experience it most acutely when we gather on Sunday mornings. It is as though heaven and earth touch. As we gather in what are little embassies of the new Jerusalem, our citizenship is on display. We are given a foretaste of heaven when we meet. It is not just the Jerusalem of the future. It is our mother above. Now look at Hebrews chapter 12. Beginning in verse 18, we heard this earlier, setting up this contrast, for you have not come to what could not be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm. Instead, verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven. To a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which says better things than the blood of Abel. Friends, we are not enslaved to Mount Sinai with its darkness, gloom, and storm. We are the assembly of the firstborn. Our names are written in heaven. Our mother is Sarah the free. Our citizenship is with our brother and king, Jesus. It is our heavenly home both now and forever. It is above, but it won't always be. Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3, this is the vision that John saw. He said, I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God will be with them, and he will be their God. Paradise regained. 
What was forfeited by Adam and Eve in the garden, what was promised to Abraham is regained in Christ and it is surpassed. We see not just a garden, but a garden city where God himself dwells with his people. Where there is no sin, no curse, no pain. God is himself the lamp of the city. It will be glorious and it is, Paul is telling us, reserved for the children of Sarah. Those who come to God through Christ by faith alone. And then Paul turns to a text in Isaiah. It begins in verse 27 for us, back in Galatians. And he wants to show that this end times Jerusalem is right now for us. That we are its citizens, its children. So Paul quotes from Isaiah 54, he says, For it is written, Rejoice, childless woman, unable to give birth. Burst into song and shout, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate woman will be many, more numerous than those of the woman who has a husband. Paul employs this for a couple different reasons. The first is probably more obvious, that just like Sarah was barren, Sarah was barren, God fulfilled his promise to give her children. We see it right now in the church, that the new Jerusalem is populated by all those who have faith in Christ. And he's also appealing about to this text because it's about Israel who is barren under the law. You see, because of Israel's inability to keep the law, her children were sent into exile. It's as though she's this barren woman. Though God had made this promise through the Abrahamic covenant that um, in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed, he would be the father of many nations. It's not happening under the law. This is a promise that the Abrahamic covenant would be fulfilled, that Abraham indeed would be the father of many nations. And Paul's saying that is happening right now in the gospel, in the new covenant, in the church. More specifically, Isaiah 54 is about Jerusalem, about how it will be rebuilt. Its tent is enlarged, meaning it grows numerically and geographically. And Paul is saying that is happening right now, not through the law, but through the gospel. True Israel was once or ethnic Israel was once barren, but true Israel now is restored in Christ. His tent is enlarged as people from every tribe, nation, and tongue believe in Jesus and are made citizens of heaven. Friends, as we take the gospel out, as our neighbors and friends believe, the city of heaven grows. And it touches earth every time a church assembles. So the Judaizers, they might have told you that too, Enter the family of God, you need to obey the law, but they've deceived you. You're actually packing your bags and moving to a city of slavery, to a mountain of gloom and storm. Paul is saying, if you heard it rightly, you would run to Jesus. We have these two sets of children. They have two very different mothers, and they lead to two very different outcomes. This is our last point, which we'll consider briefly, two outcomes. That is depending on your mother, if it's Hagar or Sarah, that's depending on your covenant of works or faith, you will have a very different status, either as a slave or a son. You will either experience bondage or freedom. We'll also see the way that one treats the other. Beginning in verse 28, now you two brothers and sisters like Isaac are children of promise. But just as the children was born as a result of the flesh, persecuted the one born as a result of the Spirit, so also now. 
Now this happened, we saw in our scripture reading of Genesis 21, so we don't need to turn there. But when Ishmael was about 17, and Isaac was probably three or so, Ishmael was treating his younger brother with contempt. He was mocking him. Sarah perhaps is fearing, maybe for the safety of her son. She tells Abraham that it's time to send Hagar and Ishmael packing, that the heir is actually Isaac. And now what Paul is doing is, again, he's taking this allegorically, and what he's explaining to us is that just as Hagar's son Ishmael, the son of the flesh, persecuted Isaac, the son of the promise, it's continuing to happen today. He says, so even now. Friends, the people of the flesh continue to persecute the people of the spirit. See that Paul is quite okay with dividing human history into two different groups. Now here in this room, those of us who are in Christ, there is no slave or free. We are one in Jesus. But Paul is quite okay with dividing all of history into two different groups. There are those who are in Christ, the second Adam. Their mother is Sarah, they are free. And then there is the rest of humanity in the first Adam, under bondage and slavery. Their mother is Hagar. And they have the propensity to hate God's people just as they hated God's son. Ishmael persecuted Isaac. The Judaizers Judaizers persecuted the Galatians. So now they persecute us. You know, when we hear persecution, I think our minds are tend to be drawn to more kind of severe examples, like someone being martyred for their faith. What Paul is saying here, don't miss it, is that if someone is trying to persuade you to abandon the gospel, they are persecuting you. They're actually doing more damage to you if you follow them than if you lost your body. You do not want to lose your soul. Friends, when your friends, your coworkers, your family members, when they try to persuade you to abandon the gospel, even just to modify the gospel, they are persecuting you. They might not realize it, They might even be well-intentioned in their own minds, but they are seeking to do damage to you. If they drive you off a cliff, it doesn't matter if they think they're taking you to the movies. You are dead. Persecution, it's not just the ill treatment of Christians. The goal is to get you to turn away from Jesus. It is the pressure applied in different means to abandon the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we've seen, I think we're at most risk probably not of a wholesale rejection of Jesus, but of following those within the church who are giving us a Jesus by the same name who cannot save it all. It might make us more comfortable for a little while, but it will not save us in the long run. I think there's a bit of irony here that it's actually the free son who's persecuted by the slave. It's not the other way around. And I think it actually demonstrates Persecution demonstrates that we have the right gospel and we are indeed Christians because it provokes the Ishmaelites, so to speak. Then Paul gives us, I think what is supposed to be taken as application of verse 30. What does the scripture say? Drive out the slave and her son. I think Paul is saying, Galatians, it's time to send the Judaizers packing. Like you should have never given them your pulpit in the first place. By listening to them, you're not rightly hearing the law in the gospel. Many churches need to take their pulpits back. Some of us might need to stop listening to certain podcasts or preachers. Some of us might even need to stop hanging out with certain friends 
who are intent on getting us to modify our gospel. Sometimes it means excommunicating someone from the body who is no longer believing in the gospel or living it out. I think Paul is telling them, it is time to drive out from your membership those who do not preach the gospel, those who are in fact promoting a different gospel. Don't put up with it. Don't flirt with it. Drive it out. And then he goes on, continuing to quote Sarah, for the son of the slave will never be a co-heir with the son of the free woman. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. What this text does is it presents us with two different types of people who are trying to uh, relate with God in two different ways. The son of the slave is trying to relate with God on the basis of works. It's actually what makes him or her a slave. It is a proof of their bondage to sin, as no amount of their law-keeping will make them right before God. And then there is the son of the free who is an heir. He's a free because he's a son of the promise. He's stopped from his working and is simply resting in Jesus. It is not by any of his works, but simply by the work of God. And in being an heir, he receives everything that is Jesus's. As we're united to him, all that is his becomes ours. His heavenly home becomes ours. His relationship with the Father becomes ours. His righteous status becomes ours. His freedom, true freedom, becomes ours. And it comes to us by faith and faith alone in Jesus. The question of the text is how will we relate to God on the basis of our faith or flesh, by the spirits or by our works? Even more simply put, I think what Paul is getting at in the book of Galatians is, is Christ enough? Do you think you need more? Because if you seek to add more, you're actually turning away from Jesus. If you rightly heard the law, which you say you want to be under, you would hear it thundering against you. Do you hear the law? If you're a Christian, you don't. As we sang earlier, he has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He who washed us with his blood will soon bring us home to God. We are the free children, the citizens of heaven. We are making our way there until it comes here. May we cling to the gospel until then. Let's pray.